Well, it is a great joy to be with you all for worship this evening uh, and an honor to share God's word with you. Most of you know who I am. My name is Dave Hinckley. If you don't, I'm a ruling elder here at University Reformed Church. I'm also on staff as the Children and Youth Ministry Director. Uh, before we begin, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon uh, the reading of his word. Father, we are grateful for the opportunity to look into your word together tonight. We do not take the grace of your word lightly. By it, you have spoken to us, and oh Lord, we want to hear from you this evening. Grant to us minds that are attentive to the word and hearts that are eager to embrace what it teaches us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is the third in our evening sermon series, looking at the lives of the two faithful kings of Judah, Hezekiah and Josiah. Uh, tonight's passage is from 2 Kings chapter 19, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 19. And if you are anything like me, you will be fascinated to learn that this passage is exactly the same, almost verbatim, as the book of Isaiah, chapter 37, verses 1 through 20. Um, that's all the, bit, the trivia you're going to get tonight. I'm not going to do anything with that, but isn't that interesting? Uh, nothing else to say about that. Um, a few introductory thoughts uh, before we read the text together, and we're going to read it through in sections. Hezekiah, in tonight's passage, finds himself in, a, in an extremely difficult place, perhaps more extreme than most of us will ever find ourselves. But his response to the crisis is instructive for us as we seek to live faithfully as believers between the advents of Christ. Hardship is not a stranger to the Christian. Our Lord promised us, and we were reminded this morning of it, that, that we would indeed have trouble in this world, but that we should be encouraged that Christ has overcome this world. Hezekiah, hard-pressed on every side, either because of his exemplary faith or simply because he has no other choice, allows the hardship that he faces to deepen his dependence upon the Lord. He trusted God in his distress, and the Lord will act on his behalf. Often when we face hard providences, two questions can, can bubble to the surface. Almost without fail, these questions bubble to the surface. Where is God? Uh, why has he let this happen to me? We're not told that he did in our passage tonight, but it may even be the case that Hezekiah asked these questions at this moment in his life. Perhaps in observing the faithful response of Hezekiah in his crisis, we will at least find clues to the answers to these questions for ourselves. I think at least we will find the answer to the question, what does it mean to hold fast and persevere in the midst 
of difficulty, in the midst of faith-challenging difficulty. So if you are someone who is hard-pressed by the circumstances or hardships of life, I want you to know that you are in good company. If tonight you are asking, where is God? I want to encourage you, exhort you, plead with you, hold on, hold fast. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely deliver you. As we look into the word tonight, it is my prayer that you and I would be granted hope confidence and resolve to persevere in the faith. I said we are, you are in good company if this is where your struggle is. Case in point, King Hezekiah. Uh, as we turn to the text, think about this question. What do you do, Christian, when you encounter a threat that even challenges your faith? I want to suggest that we will see three simple truths in Hezekiah's example that we should take to heart. We should adopt as our own strategy in the midst of hardship. Here are the three things. Uh, Hezekiah seeks the word of the Lord. Hezekiah resists the voice of the devil. And Hezekiah begs the Lord for deliverance. These are three simple things and I think it is a well-proven strategy. Here we have in our text uh, what we should do, what you should do, you who are faint of heart, here is what the Scripture is calling you to do. Brief reminder of the story so far. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. After the United Kingdom under David and Solomon, God's people divided into two nations, one to the north, Israel, and one to the south, Judah. That division lasted about 250 years until Israel, in just the previous two chapters of 2 Kings, was destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. Hezekiah watched that happen as the king in the south, Judah, and then a few years later, Assyria, like the bully that it is, turns its wrath toward Judah. In chapter 18, we heard when Kevin, uh, Kevin McCalvey preached uh, about a month ago, we heard the words of the king of Assyria's messenger, the Rabshika, which is a really fun word to say. The Rabshika speaks to Hezekiah's officials out in front of all the people so that everyone within earshot could understand. The Rabshika does a masterful job of casting doubt into the hearts of the people. In my head, as we read through this passage, I can't help picturing the mouth of Sauron from the Lord of the Rings movies. You all, hopefully you've all get that reference there. He makes threats that are a mixture of lies and truth and bluster. He speaks them plainly uh, with a promise of mercy if they just simply don't resist. He says, Hezekiah is lying to you. Oh, excuse me. Hezekiah is lying to you. He will not be able to save you from the power of the Assyrian army. Why not just surrender to us, and we will give each of you a peaceful and even prosperous life? Hezekiah trusts the Lord, but none of the gods of any of the nations that we have conquered have ever been able to save them from us. 
Don't forget that among the nations that we captured was Israel to the north. Who do they worship? The goal of the messenger is to cast doubt on multiple levels. He wanted the people to doubt Hezekiah, and he wants the people to doubt even the living God, and he wants Hezekiah himself to both doubt himself and the living God. So Hezekiah's officials take the message up to Hezekiah, which is where our text begins, 2 Kings chapter 19, starting in verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth, and he went into the house of the Lord, and he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of dis- disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God has heard all the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up a prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of the king Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will... He shall hear a rumor, return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. I'm going to pause here, like to talk a bit about the text, and then we will continue uh, a couple more times through this passage. Hezekiah is shaken by this report. We know this at least because he tears his clothes and puts on sackcloth. This is an indication of his mourning and grief. I don't think it's much of a speculation to say that he is scared, even very scared. The armies of Assyria are greater than the armies of Judah. The armies of Assyria are cruel and terrible. The threat of Assyria would have loomed very large in Hezekiah's life up to this point. He's already tried to pay them to leave Judah alone. Israel very recently has been destroyed by them, and Hezekiah would have been there when his own father shamefully abased himself to the Assyrian king and tried to change worship in Judah to be more like Assyrian worship. Now, when Hezekiah became king, he destroyed that altar that his father built, and the text tells us that he rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Hezekiah has proven his faith strong and his leadership godly. He is courageous, he is patient, and he is faithful. And now this terrifying situation has befallen him and befallen the people. So let me ask a question. Does the reality that he is scared, that he is shaken by this great threat, Or maybe even that he is doubting God's providence. That's possible here. 
Do these realities refute the notion that Hezekiah has an exemplary faith, a faith that we should emulate? Of course it doesn't. We see that here. Fear or even doubt are not the opposite of faith. Faith is less of an emotion than it is an action. You are in a terrifying situation, Hezekiah. How will you respond? Well, the first thing he does is seek the word of the Lord. God is speaking clearly and plainly through the words of Isaiah and the prophets at this time. And so Hezekiah, recognizing that his only hope is in the Lord, looks to the word of God for comfort and for help. He sends his messengers directly to Isaiah asking for prayer, and the Lord responds to Hezekiah in his fearful situation. Step back and reflect on this. The hard providences that come into a believer's life, even the strongest of believers, can shake the ground beneath them. Why then is it that we tend, is it that we, why then is it that we tend to pretend that it isn't true? Sometimes we can act like the best of Christians are somehow Stoics. Nothing, nothing ever shakes me, nothing ever affects me, I'm never anxious about anything, I never sin, I never, don't really ever suffer, and when I do, I just thank God because I have exemplary faith. Hezekiah has exemplary faith. He's neither a square-jawed superhero nor a weakling. He doesn't pretend that he's got this all under control, and neither does he give up and give in. He grieves, he mourns, he fears, and he seeks the word of the Lord. Whatever circumstance has shaken you, whatever has threatened or threatens to threaten your stability in the Christian faith, turn to the word of the Lord for comfort and help and hope. Now, you might say, Dave, isn't that an overly simplistic advice for such complex problems. I'm not suggesting that the word is somehow like an elixir that you drink and then, wow, I'm suddenly optimistic. I got my cancer diagnosis this morning, I read the Bible, and now I'm totally fine. What I want you to see is that the promises made by the living God, by the loving God, will sustain your soul in the hardest of situations. And those promises are found in the Word of God. My own life, I have been discouraged by my own sin. And I recall that he who began a good work in me will be, will be faithful to bring it to completion. I've struggled with kids who are straying from Jesus. And I recall that the Word of God does not, the Word of God sown does not return void. I lost one of my own children. And I recall the words of King David. I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. I'm not saying that reading the Bible and praying is a simple solution to all the world's ills. I'm saying that your only hope, my only hope, in the midst of a threatening and even terrifying world is the voice of the Lord the voice of the living God. 
You and I have so much more than Hezekiah did to comfort us. Hezekiah had to send out for, the, for God to offer reassurance and a promise to help. You, holding in your hands, have the check, people. The check that you are holding in your hands, written to you from God, says, to paraphrase Lucy Pevensey, all bad things will come untrue. You're wondering what the check is. It's the Bible. Catch up. All right. Now, it may be that someone in this room acquainted with suffering, acquainted with doubt, is hearing and thinking, how dare you say that? You don't understand what I've lost. How is it that you are so certain that light comes out of darkness? Meaning comes out of despair. Redemption comes out of fear. Now, I could say that in my own experience, that my own experience has shown this to be true. I could say... Uh, go around this room after this service, during the soup supper, and find one of the gray heads in the room and ask them why they agree with me on this. But the real answer to how we know that this is true, how we know that hope comes out of darkness, that the Lord has promised to work good in the midst of our hardship, the real answer to that is uh, that this Bible that you hold in your hands, uh, the, the God who wrote this Bible that you hold in your hands, is the God who, against all expectation, raised Jesus from the dead. The hope that we have isn't certain just because we feel it to be certain or we remember it to be certain. The hope that we have is certain, and we know it's true, because something has happened in space and time that has proved it true. We have these promises of hope certified by an empty tomb. So we see in Hezekiah this model. In his fear, in his uncertainty, he seeks reassurance from the only one who can really give it. He seeks the word of the Lord. And what does the word of the Lord say in reply to Hezekiah? Back in verses 6 and 7. Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. God gives words of reassurance and grace, and he sets Hezekiah's perspective on this challenge aright. Who is being challenged by the words that have been spoken? Who has been insulted? Who has been reviled? God announces what will happen, but we're not going to see what will happen until the next sermon in this series, or you could just read ahead if you want, but uh, the next sermon in the series we will uh, see the, the answers to this specific prophecy. Now let's turn back to our uh, reading, reading verses 8 through 14. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna. For he heard that the king had left Lachish, and he heard, and the king heard concerning Tirhaka, king of Cush, Behold, he has set out to fight against you. 
So he sent messengers again to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you will speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telesar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvam, the king of Hena, and the king of Iva? Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. We'll pause again here before our final section. Hezekiah receives another and more threatening message, again, with the intent to sow fear and doubt. Now, now in this one, a longer list of the nations that were destroyed and the gods who were not strong enough to resist Assyria. The end of the last section God reminds Hezekiah who the Assyrian armies are actually up against. And although it, here in this section, although it's not explicitly stated, I wonder if we can discern who Hezekiah is actually up against. All these threats are designed to tempt Hezekiah and the people to lose faith in the living God. These words are just as much the words of Satan as they are the words of the Assyrian messengers. Swords have not yet been drawn, but there is a battle being fought. The ultimate purpose of our enemy, that ancient serpent whose final destruction is to come, is to tempt God's people to turn away from God, tempt us to mistrust his word, to turn to some independence to something else, to turn to put our dependence upon something else. Hezekiah and the people are being tempted not to believe the promise of the Lord, tempted to give in to fear, tempted to give up on the living God. This is Ephesians 6 playing out for us in 2 Kings. Ephesians 6 says, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world. I think it's safe to say from scriptural precedent that spiritual warfare and difficult province, providences go together. Consider the book of Job. What's more, it's plain that in the midst of hardship, you and I are more prone to doubt, more prone to look to something else for comfort, more prone to grumble. Satan sees our weak moments as an opportune time to attack. His strategy in the midst of threatening circumstances is to sow as much doubt and discontent as he possibly can. Brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised by this. We should be ready for this. It isn't merely that hard circumstances make us doubt the Lord. It's that hard circumstances are taken advantage of by the enemy, by our enemy, to tempt us to doubt the Lord. We've got to see that this is not only what happened to Hezekiah and Job, 
This is the whole strategy that Satan has. If you are going through something hard, temptation is at hand. Temptation to doubt the power and the love of the living God. Now let me make a a short side note here because I think some of you need to hear it. When we talk about spiritual warfare and temptation to doubt the power of the living God, most of the time this isn't necessarily a conscious thing. It isn't like a contemplative moment where you're like, huh, I guess I really have doubts. Things are really hard, huh? It happens like this. Hard times come, and you say, whew, do I need a drink? What can I put on the TV for four hours? What sin can I get up to on the internet? Brothers and sisters, is that drink going to deliver you out of the hands of Sennacherib? Satan really wants for you to trust anything other than God. And God is the only one that can actually save you. So what should we do instead? What did Hezekiah do? First, Hezekiah has already girded his strength in the last section, right? His response to fear and to grief was to look directly to the voice of God for comfort. He set himself up to withstand the coming attack. Next, we see in verse 14, he takes these attacks, these attempts to tempt, the letter that he's given with all these threats, he takes this and he goes into the presence of the Lord and he prays. What do you do in the midst of temptation? Hard times have come and Satan is whispering in your ear. You hold fast and you pray. You enter the presence of your Lord. You turn to the Lord in dependence and need. Is it the strength of Hezekiah that will win the day here? Or his stoic impassibility? No, it is his humble dependence and his need. Let's look now at Hezekiah's prayer. He's gone into the presence of the Lord and has laid before the Lord the words of the enemy. Uh, Our final section, verses 15 through 19. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. With these words 
brothers and sisters, this battle is over. Sennacherib is done. The significance of Sennacherib in history has finished in this prayer. This prayer of faith, or more specifically, in God's sovereign answer to this prayer, the purpose of the Assyrian Empire and all of its important officials and its mighty army has come to its fullness. It isn't, again, till next sermon passage that the actual defeat happens. Do I say spoiler alert there? Can it be a spoiler if it was written 2,700 years ago? I don't think it can. Now, you could say that Sennacherib was done when the word of the Lord came through Isaiah back in verse 7. So why do I say it now? Because all of this drama has been playing out within the hand of the living God. Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh meant all this for evil, but the Lord means all this for the growth of our trust. The purpose of this threat was so that Judah and her king would in fact place their hope in the Lord, and through them that you and I might place our hope in the Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, who alone is God, the maker of heaven and earth. We could say that the purpose of this whole drama is contained in the last words of Hezekiah's prayer, that the kingdoms of all the earth may know that you, O Lord, is God our God alone. The victory of Hezekiah is not won in a battle. It was won in the face of a faith-challenging threat by seeking the voice of the Lord, by holding fast against the temptations of the evil one, and in utter dependence in prayer. Hezekiah's victory was not a show of force or of strength of arms, but a show of trust and hope. What does he say? God, I know who you are. I know that you are the sovereign master of all things, and I know who I am. I am yours. Vindicate your name. Prove to the world what I already know. Sometimes in the midst of our struggles, we ask questions like, why is the Lord allowing this to happen to me? We've seen that the answer to that question may be a little more complex than we understand. There are things that we don't see going on in terms of spiritual battle, but one answer to the question, one, an, one sure answer to the question, why is the Lord allowing this to happen to me, can be plainly discerned. And it is that God is giving you an opportunity to ask him for help. God wants us to ask for his help. Jesus said to Paul and, he, and says to us, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. He wants to prove himself trustworthy and glorious. This doesn't mean that he will answer 
every request in uh, your timing or to your exact specifications. But God's deliverance is way better than your plans. Why has God allowed this thing to happen to you? Well, the answer is both Ephesians 6.12 and 1 Thessalonians 4.3. Ephesians 6.12 was, we battle not against uh, the flesh and blood, the powers and principalities, uh, the spiritual realm. And 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of the Lord for you, your sanctification. Sanctification The Christian life of discipleship, in brief, is learning to trust him, learning to trust your God in all things, learning to depend upon him more and more and more. The more comfort that you take in God himself, the less you take in other things. Heaven is where you love the giver more than the gift. And the Christian life is nothing but a preparation for heaven, brothers and sisters. Why did this happen to Hezekiah? Why was this allowed to happen? So that Hezekiah might reach out in utter dependence and need to his God, and so that you and I might be encouraged to do the same. Brothers and sisters, hold on. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He is present. He is working. He is speaking. He is answering. He is eager to strengthen you, to comfort you, and to deliver you in the midst of your trouble. Let's pray to him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you? None are as mighty as you are. None are as faithful as you are. Heaven and earth are yours. The world and all that is in it. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day. Lord, I pray for those of us here tonight facing trials of various kinds. We ask that in your faithfulness you would deliver them and demonstrate to them your sovereign love and your good purposes. Comfort them and grant them the strength to hold fast. Lord, we ask for your deliverance, that we might testify to the world around us of your great love for us and of your great power, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.